Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, as we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 10 today. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at this idea of redemption quite a bit as we go through this passage. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer again and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to remove any sort of precondition that we bring to your word, meaning help us not to interpret your word using our experience, our circumstance, but rather that our experiences and our circumstances would be informed by your word. Lord, we pray that you would change us through the reading, the hearing, the preaching, and the understanding of your holy word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we deal with this word redeemed, this word redeemed has been changed quite a bit. The word hasn't been changed, but it has uh, lost a lot of its meaning in Christian culture, and it has to do with a lot the fact that it's used in normal culture, and it's kind of kind of blended in. The word obviously still means the same thing, but oftentimes when you hear people use it, they talk about redeeming something, like redeeming some sort of like loyalty points at a restaurant or a gas station, you know, when you like use the app to get a free drink or some fries or something, like redeeming those points, or maybe... Maybe even using it to recover something that was bad, meaning like, and it's something that we oftentimes have done to ourselves. You know, it kind of gets close to the real meaning, but rather we uh, typically, instead of redemption being something that someone does for us, we talk about it as if, well, I messed up and now I have redeemed myself by doing something better. Thankfully, having just gone through the book of Hosea, which I think more than any other book in the Bible gives us a very clear picture of what, when the Bible uses the word redemption, what the meaning is trying to get at. Gomer, who was Hosea's adulterous wife, has to be purchased back by Hosea after she had sold herself into prostitution. And so redemption is the picture of Hosea having to purchase someone that was his, but was lost through no fault of his own, and he literally had to buy her back or redeem her in order to have her. In our text from Ephesians today, we have God's work of redemption of his people on full display. The people of God were lost because of their sin, yet God orchestrated a plan from the foundation of the earth to buy them back. And the purchase was made with the blood of the only Son, Jesus Christ. This understanding of redemption is found all throughout the Old and New Testaments, of course. But here in Ephesians, we have a very concise understanding of it in the context of God's full redemptive plan as we've been laying it out over the course of Ephesians chapter 1. And I think this is very important for the church not only to gain a deeper understanding of our own redemption, but also to understand the plight of the lost world. 
We gain a better understanding of our work of evangelism, how we have been appointed as those who will preach the gospel so that God might use the preaching of the gospel to buy his sheep back, as it were. The gospel being that message of redemption. As we move through this text, I want to break it down into three main ideas that we are bought back in Christ, that we are forgiven in Christ, and then finally we are restored in Christ. And so look with me together at the text, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just for some context, Paul has laid out a great summary of God's redemptive plan for his people that he, that he explains to us are a people that are chosen from the foundation of the earth that are predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ. This isn't, and we're going to talk about this as we go through the text today, but this isn't God's plan B contingent on the fact that we messed things up in the garden. It's not as if things were going great, Adam and Eve sinned, and then God had to kind of drop back and punt and think of a new way. This is God's plan from the beginning of time, which he has now revealed through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, who is also this Redeemer. Again, we're going to talk about this mystery of God's plan, but in Jesus, this plan has been revealed. One of the things I want to bring out that we're going to continue to talk about over the coming weeks in this book is this idea of being in Christ, this idea of things being in Christ, that all things are coming together in him. What does it mean that we are in Christ, that our our union with him as Believers, We talked about this idea quite a bit as we were going through the book of Galatians, which features it very prominently. Of course, the New Testament does. We are told that if anyone is in Christ, in 1 Corinthians, that he is a new creation. We are also told that the great mystery hidden for the ages is now revealed in us, his people, which is in Christ. The hope of glory is in Colossians. So often we get focused on the benefits that we have in Christ. We get focused on the fact that Christ's death purchased us redemption, and these are the benefits of that redemption, which is, of course, absolutely necessary for believers to know and to learn and to rest in. But we often forget that when the Bible says that we are in Christ, it is saying that we have him and that Jesus has us. We have eternal fellowship with Him. We have His presence. We have Him. When we come to the Lord's table each week, we celebrate His presence, His spiritual presence with us. And we await the day when we will be with Him physically again. So as we explore this idea of redemption, understand that it is 
that we not only are redeemed to the benefits of our salvation, absolutely we are, but we have been redeemed to our Savior Himself. That brings us to the first point, we are bought back in Christ. Let's look again at verse 7 of Ephesians 1. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Again, this concept of redemption is fairly common throughout Scripture. It's seen in many of the narrative stories as well as these more didactic teachings of the New Testament. The word redeem literally portrays the idea of kind of moving away from the concept of a ransom or a payment of a ransom in order to procure a person, which is something that we don't often think about today Thankfully, but in the New Testament times, a slave in the New Testament times had a cost that was associated with them, and that cost was called their ransom. One could free that slave or purchase that slave by paying the ransom to the owner. The slave could even pay their own ransom and have freedom in that way. At that point of the payment of the ransom, the the slave was freed or the slave's ownership was transferred to a new owner. This word redemption is different in that it emphasizes that distance that we have from that ransom, from the payment that has been paid for us as believers, or the idea that because of our payment, we have been released back to our previous state, or we have been bought back by a previous owner. In the context of Scripture, we see how God's overarching plan is to buy back His people from the clutches of sin and death and return them to His favor, which we originally had in the Garden of Eden. So what is the cost then? We're talking a lot about purchasing, right? About this idea of purchasing for the slave, depending on the work that he was or she was able to do, that price would be set at a particular level. Well, what about for the sinner? The price in order to purchase us back from sin and death was so great because God hates sin and death. Because God cannot stand sin, there is really no earthly price that could be paid for our release. There's nothing that we could kind of scrape together in order to procure our own release. There's no amount of good things that we can do or to undo the bad of our sin. It requires an act of God himself. There's no amount of money that we could ever drum up or that our the whole of humanity could ever bring together collectively. It requires an act of one who is all-powerful to do this. And this is why Jesus had to come. Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no redemption. There's no forgiveness of sins. Jesus had to not only undo the evil of our sin by doing right and good in his own life, but he had to die in our place, essentially accepting upon himself our sin and the punishment that was due to us for that sin, the wrath of God the Father. Our sins simply couldn't be forgotten about in the grand scheme of things. Why? Because if God says... This is my law. But he also says, well, this time I'll forget that whole law thing. Then he ceases to be any authority and his words become vacant. When he said or when when Hosea 
was when God said to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. You may remember that from Hosea chapter 3. He was showing his people then and today this real picture of redemption. When Hosea went and he bought his wife, he said to her, you must dwell as mine, and so I will also be with you. Though the people were more fond of raisin cakes than they were their God, he purchased them anyway. And he did so with the blood of his only begotten son, our Lord Jesus and that blood covered the price of their purchase and our purpose purchase, giving us the status of the Son before the Father and giving the Son our sin and our death. And so then how does this affect us today as His redeemed or those who have been purchased? We aren't simply to rest in that redemption. We are, we are to continue to act as those who are redeemed. What does Hosea say to his wife? You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. You are to act as if you are my wife. I am buying you back as my wife. Now you are to act like it. How does this translate for us? We shall not in this new life of redemption play after the affection of other gods. What are they? Well, they're as old as time, and we've talked about them at length in this church. Sins that would have us think that we have some authority over God. That we are able to create our own versions of good and right, and our own versions of justice in the world. Hosea's wife had all the love and acceptance that she could ever get from him at home. But there was always another that can woo her away with the promise of a better life. And how did that turn out for them? Well, it was awful. Israel was easily lured away from their God by the promise of protection or power or money. But in the end, it only bought them pain and suffering. And ultimately, it bought them exile. What about for us? These gods are the pursuit of wealth as an end of itself because we believe that a bigger barn is always better. The acceptance and the approval of men because God saying, I will never leave you or forsake you has never really been enough. We need others to also say that to us as well. The need for control in every situation by being completely angry or completely anxious Because God isn't sovereign, we are. And that with my anger or with my worry, I can control my situations. These are all gods that we bow to, that we continue to go after, other than trusting in the one that has purchased us with the blood of his only begotten son. Church, let us seek after the one that calls us, the one that bought us back so that we could live with Him forever. Does it stop there? 
Does there need to be any word after this? And I think this is important for us. Did Hosea's wife have to then seek the forgiveness of Hosea or was it implied? That brings us to the next point. We are forgiven in Christ. Why do we need forgiveness? If we've been bought back and we are His, why do we now need this forgiveness that is spoken of? Look again at verse 7. In Him we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Paul didn't include redemption and forgiveness as one idea, but he made sure to separate them. And this isn't to say that our redemption is is or isn't sufficient to save us at all because it absolutely is. However, as a part of our redemption, there is a necessary conclusion that these sins that caused us to be separate from the Father in the first place have to be rectified. There has to be some forgiveness for them in order to prevent further indiscretion between us and the Father. However, the problem with our sinful nature is that no matter what, our tendencies are going to be to walk away from God and toward sin. So there has to be a permanent fix concerning our sins. And that fix, of course, is the righteousness of Christ. In Christ, we no longer have to go out and sacrifice a goat or a sheep to shed its blood that we can have pardon. In Christ, that He was killed and He was sacrificed once and for all. He shed His blood that I might be covered with it. That I might have forgiveness once and for all. All throughout Scripture we read about God forgiving the transgressions of others. But, but all that forgiveness ultimately pointed, of course, to Jesus who would be paying for the sins of all His people from Adam until now. If we have salvation and we have Christ, then what role does forgiveness play in our lives today? We still need to recognize ourselves as ones who have the forgiveness of our sins, but also as ones who still sin. What should we do then? We should seek out after our Father and ask forgiveness. Not in order to be saved over and over again. And for a lot of people, this is kind of the outworking of that, right? Well, I've kind of, I'm kind of reset with Jesus and now I've gone out and sinned again. And so I need to kind of be reset again. And you've heard this word rededication that is oftentimes used as if it's really from the Bible. And it's not. We don't ask for forgiveness because it's necessary. But we seek out forgiveness because of the relationship that we have with the Father. This act of repeatedly seeking out the Lord and turning from our sins has a name. And it's called repentance. And it's required of one to come to faith in Christ. It's a normal part of a Christian life. On the other side of redemption as well. And I think about it with the relationship that I have with my kids. I love my kids. Nothing can change that. And when, but they, when they do wrong, I still teach them. I still teach them to seek after forgiveness, to repent, because it teaches them that their hearts are not perfect. This attitude of forgiveness and repentance toward God also instructs us on how we're to deal with others. 
And I think specifically of the Lord's Prayer. We, we, we recited part of the Lord's Prayer this morning from the Heidelberg Catechism. But in, in the Lord's Prayer, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, the Lord Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. This isn't to say that we somehow buy our salvation by forgiving others. We have to be careful with that. But one who has salvation will be one who forgives others, who is actively forgiving others rather than hanging on to sins. We have been forgiven much, and our attitude towards others should be to forgive as well. Repeatedly seeking forgiveness from the Father is a great model for us in our relationships with other humans because of who has forgiven or who has forgiven us more than the Father above. If we were wronged every single day for the rest of our lives, we would never match the amount that He has forgiven us. We therefore should be very quick to forgive sins against us and seek reconciliation, especially inside the church. And I'd even say that this paradigm of forgiveness and repentance is a great way to show an unbeliever the love of Christ. In fact, they oftentimes don't know how to react to it. It reminds me of a story at Murray High School when I was first there and I was learning everybody. And if you guys know, I sometimes can come across a bit blunt, uh, just a little bit, and I offended a teacher. Uh, with something that I had said and was not my intent at all, but I wronged her and I asked her to forgive me. And I'll never forget her face. She didn't even have a real way to categorize that. She didn't understand even how to deal with my request. Please, I have wronged you. Please forgive me. She was so taken aback by it that she came later and let me know how much that meant to her. This is an unbeliever. It went a long way to restore our relationship, and since, it has been a great foundation for that. That was a picture of Christ for her, that simple act of me just asking her to forgive me. Redemption and forgiveness are a foundation by which the Lord Jesus will bring restoration to the world that brings us to the last point, restored in Christ. Let's look again at our text. In Him we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Redemption and forgiveness And the Lord lavishing these things upon us are part of the revealed will of God, which up until the coming of Christ, these things were considered a big mystery. Many have wondered, what does, what does this mean that God's plan all along was to have redemption and forgiveness? Yes, this is exactly what it means. That from the very foundations of the earth, that He had a people for Himself. That God's plan all along is that we would have redemption. That there would need to be forgiveness through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
Why did God plan that? Why did he do that that way? Get ready. This is going to be mind-blowing. We haven't been given that bit of information so that it isn't for us to concern ourselves with why God chose the plan that he did. The wrong answer or the wrong thing for us to do would be for us to develop some sort of philosophical construct that answers that question since the Bible isn't altogether clear clear on the mystery of this of this uh, decision that God made we need to develop some sort of philosophical thing that allows for us to kind of make this work right that allows for God to have this plan B that was contingent upon Adam and Eve's sin and I can then make everything work together if I can just impinge a little bit upon the name and the divine plan of God. Well, God doesn't do contingencies. God doesn't learn. He doesn't act upon information that he's gathered because he doesn't gather information. He has one plan, and that has been his plan that has gone forward and will continue to go forward. And it is the plan that all things will be united to Christ in heaven and earth. That means that everything that was destroyed by the curse of sin and the sting of death are now being remade. The souls of men and women that would have found eternal death and deserved every bit of it without Christ now have the promise of eternal life in Christ. And have been made new creations in him. The world that longs for the day of the Redeemer will come back is now being made new. Through his people and through the work of his people. And then God seeing his kingdom come to earth through his people. What does that mean for our lives today? Since Jesus not only redeemed me, but is redeeming and restoring all things. Think about that for just a moment. If he's redeemed me, but is also redeeming all the things and bringing them all together in him, then that gives meaning to what I do on a daily basis. Everything that I do. One of the things that I really struggled with when I left full-time ministry, it's been now 11 plus years ago, I really struggled with the idea of that I'd be able to no longer, quote-unquote, do ministry. But what I quickly found out is that there's a place that the, where I work and in my family and everything that I do that I'm very much doing ministry all the time because God is bringing all things together in Him. That when we do work on this earth, anything that we're doing in the name of Jesus He is using that work to see His kingdom come. To see all things be made new in Him. And this is one of the real problems that I have with unbelief and and the unbeliever. Because of the redemption, because if the redemption and the restoration of Christ aren't a real thing, which the unbeliever of course doesn't believe in those things, then why do anything that has meaning at all? You know, as a biology teacher, I really have struggled with this and even and had some real good conversations with a couple of the professors at Murray State about this. Why do anything that has meaning if you really believe in this idea of evolution? Why get married? 
Why have a monogamous relationship at all? Why have children? Why get a job? Why would you do anything at all that wasn't completely out of 100% selfish ambition? If you believe that not all things are being restored, but instead it's the opposite, that all things are going away. Because he is uniting all things to himself, that everyday things of life have meaning because of Christ, because he is at the center of redemption and restoration of all things, not just a few things, but all of them. It should change the way that we look at the world on a grander scale, brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't need to be afraid of who's in charge. We don't need to agree with who's in charge even. We don't need to be afraid of some terrorist group on the other side of the world. Why? Because we believe that all things are being united to Christ and in Christ. And we believe that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, God made flesh. When we believe that we are in Him, the world all of a sudden is a much less scary place and becomes a place that I want to have a part in in its restoration. So what can we do as a church? If we want to be a part of this restoration and redemption of the world, well, we, we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the furthest, furthest reaches of the world. We hold hands with those who don't see things the way that we do. And we tell them, Look, I know a man who won't necessarily change your circumstances, but he can redeem your soul. We offer them redemption. Problems of this world are put in perspective when we know that the great Redeemer has unveiled this mystery and that he wants to buy back those things that were lost and he wants to take back those things that were his. And he will use us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to do just that. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we are thankful that we can call ourselves among those who have been redeemed, those who are being restored, those who will ultimately be restored in you. Lord, we pray that you would use us as your agents of redemption and restoration in this world. Empower us and embolden us with the gospel of truth that others would call upon the name of Jesus, the only name under heaven by which men can be saved and that this world will be restored. And we pray in his holy name. Amen. Please stand with me now as we sing our response to God's Word.